Good morning, church. It's a, uh, it's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. We, we are privileged to worship God in the midst of his people. This day is a day that we should be glad with. It's a day that we should be encouraged. In corporate worship, we get to be encouraged and uh, be joyful. But it's also a place where we weep and confess our sins. It's not only a place to get encouraged, but it's also a place to confess. That's what we are going to see from our text, Psalm 51, this morning. The system of this world has given a mindset to people that seeks entertainment each and every second. This word has labeled weeping, agonizing, and pain as the worst thing that could ever happen to us. But that's not the way that the Bible sees it. The Bible calls us to grieve a grief that is from God. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 51, and let us read the whole chapter. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I a sin, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth iniquity, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will come to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then 
will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The lamb bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm was written after one horrific event, after one sad story. That story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, king of Israel, was walking on the roof of his house when he saw a woman taking bath. He found her to be very beautiful. So he sent his servants to bring her to him in order to sleep with her because he is a king. Although he knew the woman, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, he forced her to sleep with him. After that, she became pregnant with a child, and as soon as David knew this, that she was pregnant, he called Uriah from the battlefield to make him to sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. But Uriah refused. David tried multiple times in order to hide his adultery by trying to make people think that the child that Bathsheba was carrying was from Uriah, so he was forcing him to sleep with his wife. But after Uriah's refusal, David decided to kill him by making him stand in the front line of the battle. Uriah did die, and David took Bathsheba as his wife. Legal marriage. He thought the story was over. But God saw the evil did and sent his prophet Nathan to rebuke the king, David. So this song was written after the encounter, after David's encounter with Nathan. The main point or the main theme of our sermon today is the following. God forgives our sins and renews our hearts. God forgives our sins and renews our hearts. So let's go to him with a broken spirit. Let's go to God with a humble heart. We're going to see the passage in two points. We're going to see it with two points. The first one is a God who forgives our sins. A God who forgives our sins from verse 1 to 9. That's the first point. The second point, a God who renews our hearts. We have a God who renews our hearts from verse 10 to 19. So let's start with the first point. A God who forgives our sins from verse 1 to 9. This chapter is filled with, on one hand, transgressions, sins, and iniquities. And on the other hand, is filled with mercy, love, and forgiveness. Sin and forgiveness. Mercy and transgression, iniquity and love. David is saying, Lord, I know who I am and I know who you are. We clearly see the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. David knows who really he is, and he knows who God is. One theologian said, true wisdom consists of two things, knowledge of God 
and knowledge of self. So between first, uh, verse 1 and 9, we will see these points. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Let's see David's self-knowledge first. Knowledge of himself. Who are you, David? Well, I am a sinner. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions. He saw Bathsheba taking bath. The sight was accidental, but the gazing was intentional. He saw and he stared at her. Gazing at her gave him a thought. The worst thing that a person can do to himself is feeding the dragon inside his heart. It is a wise action to deal with sin before it becomes a monster that's going to destroy us. Give sin an inch, it will take you a mile. He saw and he gazed. He stared at her. He gave an inch and see how the sin takes him a mile. After he saw her, he asked her to people beside, beside him, Who is she? And they replied to him, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The wife of Uriah. The conversation should have ended there. She has a husband. But he sent a messenger to take her. Brothers and sisters, the thoughts, the bad thoughts that we, what, that we entertain in our minds will come to an action. The thoughts that David had led him downhill. He slept with another man's wife. He gave sin an inch, he's taking it a mile. And this is not just another man. The husband of uh, Bathsheba is not just another man. He is Uriah, a military officer fighting for the kingdom and for the king, for David. He was fighting for David. Uriah was fighting for David, and David was sleeping with his wife. What an outrageous sin it is. But David didn't stop here. Oh, no, he didn't stop here. He gave sin an inch, and it's still taking him a mile. After the adultery, rather than repenting and weeping of his, uh, of his sin, he tried his best to cover up his deeds. He did his best for Uriah to sleep with his wife. He, he was tricking him. Notice how deceitful David was. He was give, giving Uriah presents and gifts in order for him to enjoy his time with his wife. He invited him to his place to eat and drink. David even made Uriah drunk in order for him to sleep with Bathsheba. In that way, people will assume that the child is Uriah's child. Do you see how far David came to cover his sin? At the end, he eventually murdered Uriah to make his sin right. He made adultery, he lied, he murdered, and he wants to keep all things sacred. So who are you, David? He's saying, I am a sinner. David thought he was successful in hiding his sins, but God revealed his sin to Nathan. 
not only Nathan, but the whole house of Israel heard about this story, heard about this sin. Not only about Israel as David's time, but all throughout Israel's generation. This story has been told by many. In 1 Kings 15 verse 5 says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Like, this is great, right? What a statement. But I tell you for sure, David didn't want the last part of this verse to be read. It says, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And here we are today, after thousands of years, talking about his secret sins. Secret sins are not secret at all. Do you try to hide your sin just like David? Do you put a lot of efforts to hide the real you? Are there any videos that you are hiding from your spouse or from your friends? Our secret sins are not secret. We are sinning in front of a God who sees everything. After Nathan rebuked him, David came to his sins and he wrote this song. He's saying that, I am a sinner. I know myself, Lord. I am a sinner. But, but notice that he doesn't only say transgressions, iniquities, sins. He says, my transgressions, my iniquities, my sins, Lord. It's filled with my. He doesn't blame God like Adam by saying, the woman you gave me. He doesn't blame others like Eve by saying, it's the serpent. He's saying, it is me, Lord. It is me. I did it. It is my sin, my transgression. The day we start to make excuses for our sins, that's the day that we are starting to fall down. He didn't say, because I was walking on the roof and saw her accidentally. Or he didn't say it happened because she was bathing outside. No, no. He, he said, it's because of me, Lord. It's because of my heart. Our sinful actions are not mainly initiated by our circumstances. They are not initiated by our circumstances. It's because of our hearts. You are not watching pornography because you are young and you have desires, but because you have a sinful heart. You're not talking rudely to your spouses or kids. It's not because they are making you angry or they don't understand you. It's mainly because you have a sinful heart. We have a sinful heart. That's what David is saying in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is true for all human beings. We all are sinners by nature. We didn't become sinners when we sinned. We sin because we are sinners. 
It's who we are. It's our nature. For those of us who are true believers, our hearts have been transformed by the grace of God. We have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. But still, just like David, our deep thoughts and desires need to be sanctified every moment and every day. This, the sins that we do arises from there, from our hearts, from our deep thoughts. I want us to take a moment and give attention to verse 3. My sin is ever before me. My sin is before me. My mind is filled with it. I cannot think anything of anything else. I cannot get it off my mind. I've been broken into pieces. Please let me hear joy and gladness. My sin is before me, Lord. I have sinned against you, Lord. And it is a big deal. It's serious, brothers and sisters. Do you feel that? We have to feel the weightiness of sin. Oh, it has to bother our minds. We have, we have to mourn in agony and in pain. It has to bother our day-to-day -day life. Sin should not become normal to us. It has to create some kind of discomfort in our day-to-day -day life. Despite the sin being big or being small, does it bother us? Listen to this question. Is there a sin in your life that you used to think of it as a big and very wicked sin before, but now you got used to it? Is there a sin that you just stopped struggling to stop? Recently, I saw a video about cold-blooded animals and their reactions to te temperature change. A teacher was showing his students how frogs' body reacts to boiling water. So he boiled water in a pot, and he tried to put a frog inside that pot. So as soon as the frog touched the pot, immediately it will try to jump out for safety. The frog recognized the immediate change in its environment. On the second try, the teacher put the frog in the pot with a room temperature water. Then the frog stayed there. He put the pot on a stove and slowly he began to increase the temperature. The frog didn't move at all. It didn't flinch. Even when the temperature reached like 100 degrees Celsius, the water was boiling. The frog failed to get out and to recognize the temperature change. In the end, at the end, it was too late and the frog just died. I think that's our life. Satan and this world would not push us to start with adultery, or with murder, or with fornication. Instead, 
they give us a wicked thought or lust, they would create a hate inside our heart. If we entertain the sins that seems very small, we will get used to sins that we assume to be big. When he, David, says, I have sinned only against you, it doesn't mean that the others were not hurt at all. But what makes sin sin is that it's performed in front of a holy and righteous God. When he did the deeds, he was standing against God. When we see wicked videos, when we gossip, when we lie, when we, when we insult, we are standing against God. Whenever we gossip about some people from work or church, we are sinning against God. A little sinful lie in workplace is a sin against God. So David, who are you? Well, I am a sinner. But David doesn't only know that he is a sinner, but he also acknowledges that God is a merciful God. He knows his sin is great, but God's mercy is greater. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of God leads to salvation. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast life. Blot out my transgressions according to your abundant mercy. His mercy is abundant. God's mercy is abundant. He's rich with mercy. There is no end to it. There is no end to his mercy. It is perfect and whole. This is what gives confidence to the sinner to come to God to ask for forgiveness. Your God is a merciful God. He is a God filled with mercy. The thing that motivates us to confess and ask for forgiveness is that we know God has both the power and the will to forgive us. Some people say that there is no need to confess and ask for cleansing since Jesus paid it on the cross. Well, that's not right. The cross, the work of Christ, is the ground, the reason, the cause for us to ask for a mercy. Because of the cross, we know that we are already forgiven and we will be forgiven. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. First John chapter 2, verse 1. David knows who he is, and he also knows who God is. So, David, who is God? God is love. God is merciful. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He and only he has the power to cleanse me from my sin. I shall be clean if he purges me with his hyssop. Hyssop was kind of a shrub that used to be dipped into blood and wa or water, and it's, uh, it's going to be put on, usually on a door, 
to show that that house is clean. So David is saying that unless you purge me with your own hyssop, I will not be clean. Unless you wash me, I will be sin sinner forever. There are no good deeds that can right my wrongs. There are no good works that can make me a good person. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Surely we shall be whiter than snow. Many Christians think that the way that the Old Testament people get saved and washed from their sin is totally different than the way we got saved and we got washed away from our sin. We think that they got saved by keeping the law and for us through grace. No. No, it's not like that. There is only one way. There is only one blood. There is only one Savior. From eternity to eternity, people can be saved through only one person, Jesus Christ. There is only one way, brothers and sisters. There is no other way. The people on Old Testament, they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Have you been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you saved from your sins? As David was. That, that was what David believed in. Paul affirms this truth in Romans chapter 4, verse 6 to 8. Paul says, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God doesn't owe us mercy. He owes us punishment. And David acknowledged this truth in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. We all were objects of wrath, children of wrath. God's wrath was laid upon us, and more was waiting for us. Because of sin, God's wrath is upon the sinner. Listen to this. This is how the Bible describes the wrath of God upon a sinner. Psalms verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 12 2.13. Listen to this. If a man does not repent, God will wait his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God has bent and readied his bow to strike us down. That's the wrath of God. This is a very scary thought. We are sinners at the hand of 
angry God? Have you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ? Brothers, you have believed in Jesus Christ and then the wrath of God is not on you. If you didn't believe on the Son of God, I plead today for you to believe in Jesus Christ and to repent of your sin. We deserve to be punished, but because of his great mercy and love, we are pardoned. But it looks like David was asking for more than forgiveness. It looks like he was asking for a clean heart and renewed spirit. The main sign of being forgiven is having a heart for a change. That brings us to our second point. Our second point, a God who renews our hearts. Starting from verse 10 to the end. Create in me a clean heart, O God, a renew and renew a right spirit within me. We often see the word heart in the Bible. Well, what does it mean? In this passage, obviously, it doesn't mean that David is talking about the heart, the organ heart that pumps blood throughout the body. Neither he was talking about some romantic or uh, uh, philosophical definition. He was not talking about that. Our heart, our heart is our spiritual place or our spiritual part where our thoughts, desires, dwells in. It's a place where our emotions dwell in. That is what David is talking about. He's talking about, oh God, clear my thoughts, purify my desire and emotions. God is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can clean our hearts. And a true believer recognizes the need for a clean heart. He's saying, not just forgive me, but also change me, O oh Lord. Don't stop at the point of forgiving my adultery, but clean my heart from lusting. God, yes, yes, forgive my sins of murder. Yes, please forgive me, but don't just stop there. Purify my heart from the thought of hate. Let me be satisfied with you, Lord. Let me be satisfied with you. We find ourselves squandering and wandering with our hearts to get satisfaction. Sin is, just, is being unsatisfied with God. That is what David was asking. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let this be our prayer this morning. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me be satisfied with you. I don't want to wander around, Lord. Let me get that, that satisfaction, that gratification, that fulfillment in you, Lord. That joy. It doesn't say restore to me your salvation. 
It is the joy and the assurance that David lost, not the salvation. Verse 11 might seem like it's suggesting that David is on the verge of losing his salvation. It says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Some Bible scholars suggested that David here might be talking about the anointing of his kingship. Since he was a king, he had a special anointing from God that is shown by temporal dwelling of the Spirit. You remember Samson. Samson had the same experience. The king before him, King Saul, had the same anointing. But we know that King Saul lost his anointing, his kingship, because of his disobedience, and he was cast out from God's presence. So it seems like David is asking God not to take the kingship anointing. Otherwise, he will be a king that lost favor in front of God. This is what uh, some Bible scholars suggest. But I would say I agree with the other explanation of this text. The natural way of reading this text and the immediate context suggests that David was in a deep, deep agony that he lost his assurance in his salvation. Therefore, he was pleading with God to confirm to his salvation, his election. He was crying out loud, don't let me prove to be among some of the elect who saw and test some spiritual things but didn't really believe in you. Please confirm to me that I am still in your presence. That's what we have seen before three weeks ago in Second Peter chapter 1. Confirm your election. Sin makes us lose our assurance and joy of God's salvation. Whenever sin overwhelms us, we begin to doubt the grace that saved us. We will start to do our best to work hard to get our salvation back. Sin distorts the image that we have of God's salvation. But I also want to encourage you today. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is enough for you. It's enough for you to purchase eternal life. Nobody can snatch you out of your Savior's hand, not even your sins. You are fighting the battle as a winner because Christ is the commander-in-chief. This passage shows us that our heart is renewed by God. Psalm 51. Three things will follow. Three things will follow when we have a clean heart, a renewed spirit. Three things will come as a result of having a clean heart. Thus are true worship, good fellowship, and active mission. True fellowship, good fellow, uh, true worship, I'm sorry, true worship, good fellowship, and active mission. We We see true worship in verse 14 up to 17. The sacrifice of God is a heart that humbly comes to him. He's not pleased with superficial activities and rituals. 
the true worship of God arises from a clean heart. We see this in the chapter before our passage, Psalm 50, verse 7, just one chapter before. God is talking. I am God, your God, not for your sacrifices do I, re I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house, for every beast of the forest is mine. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Church, we should never, never, ever assume that God is in need of our worship. He is God without our worship, without anyone's worship. There are an infinite number of angels singing for him and praising him. True worship arises from a heart that recognizes how great God is and how fragile we are. The other is good fellowship. If we have a clean heart, we would have good fellowship. Verse 18 and 19, we see David pleading for God's people, for Zion, to bring true worship to God. A clean heart will always look out for brothers and sisters. We should not only be concerned with our worship, we should not only be concerned about our holiness, our marriage, our struggles. We should also be concerned with the worship of the whole church. Again, let's pause for a moment here and see verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I don't know if you notice the word teach. It says teach. Really? Really, David? After what have you done? Do you want to teach others God's way? After you took someone's wife and forced her to sleep with you and killed her husband and hide it, and you still want to teach Adonai's way? That's, that's us, church. That is us. We are people who used to be blind. But now we are showing people where to get a sight. We were lost, but now we are sent out to find the lost. We were sinners, but by the work of Christ, we are new creation, calling the dead to life. A clean heart spurs a heart to evangelism, an active mission. Jesus Christ instructed us to go and preach the gospel. Christian, have you ever felt like you have sinned so bad to the extent that God cannot use you? Do you struggle with a specific sin? Do you find it hard to stop some kind of sins? God can really change you. You can see in David's life, 
you can see peoples on Hebrew 11. Abraham went to Agar. Imagine Samson. He was mentioned there. Jacob, David, God can't really change you. Come to God with a broken spirit, just like the tax collector in Luke 18, who would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest by saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Ask for forgiveness. God really can't change you. He is faithful to change you. In conclusion, do we use this story to make an excuse for our sins? Do you think of it as a reason to stay in your sin? Well, many do. There are consequences to our sins. There, are, there were consequences to David's sins. He, he lost his sons, Adonijah, Absalom. They died. We all know what happened to Tamar and Anna. His kingdom trembled. This story is not written for us to say we can sin, but still God will forgive. It's, it's not written for us to be attracted. It's written for us to be warned. It's written to us to warn us. Adulterers and murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But still God forgives. If you come with lowly spirit, he will forgive you. If we repent of our sins, he surely has hidden his face from our sins. Don't put a lot of concern in your past sin. God will use it for good. Just see the bloodline of Christ from Bathsheba. Matthew tells us on Matthew chapter 1 that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, came from Bathsheba, from this story. God can use your sin to bring righteousness. He can use your sin to bear fruit. So don't put a lot of concern in your past sin. At last, don't allow the agony you feel over your sin to be numbed by social media, fun, and entertainment. Don't let the sadness that you feel be taken away by the things of this world. Listen to me. Take time to be sad. Take time to reflect on your sin. When you go home, close your phone and spend time reflecting on your sin and on God's mercy. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation.